Welcome to Music History Monday for November 7th, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Listening to the Thunder from Down Under. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on November 7th, 1926, 96 years ago today, of the dramatic coloratura soprano Dame Joan Alston Sutherland in Sydney, Australia. She died on October 10th, 2010, in Montreux, Switzerland, at the age of 83. I want you all to know up front that Joan Sutherland was the first singer on whom I had a major crush, both because of her stupendous voice, hey, she wasn't called La Stupenda for nothing, and for reasons to be described below. In this post, I will be using the occasion of Ms. Sutherland's birth to not just talk about her extraordinary talent but to wax nostalgic, for which I trust you'll indulge me. While that nostalgia might dominate this post, be assured that tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post will be dedicated entirely to Joan Sutherland's artistry and recordings. Records and record players. I'm going to talk about sound reproducing equipment for a bit, please though it might momentarily appear that I am geeking out here, I am in fact not. Because for people of a certain age, our records and the gear on which we played our records were for our younger selves and perhaps our older ones as well, an essential, irreplaceable part of our lives. Like most kids born around the time I was, 1954, I, Actually, we, my brother and I, had a portable record player on which we played the 45 RPM records our family bought for us. The two records I remember as being my six or seven-year-old self's favorites were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Gerald McBoingborn at Professor Wumpel's Music School. Thanks to the World Wide Web, I found both recordings online and offer up links below. The Wanderers perform Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, recorded in 1959, and Gerald McBoing at Professor Wumpel's Music School was recorded circa 1957. I remember feeling that there was magic in those little records, with their tiny grooves somehow containing music and I was mesmerized by the record player itself, the tone arm swinging back and forth, the spinning turntable, and of course, the music that came out of the thing. It was the best toy I ever owned. Downstairs, in the living room, my parents had a somewhat higher fidelity record player, not at all unlike the one pictured in the blog version of this post. My parents had an eclectic mix of records, 
classical, mostly orchestral, jazz, mostly jazz piano players, Broadway shows, lots of Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett, and lots of Joan Sutherland. More on those Sutherland recordings in a moment. And then, then came 1965. For the wonderful musical satirist and math professor Tom Lehrer, 1965 was, that was the year that was. For the Greenberg family at 11 Bellhurst Lane in Willingboro, New Jersey, that was the year we went from being technologically deficient to the techno forefront. Because that was the year we got our first color TV in RCA, and the year that my father, who was a fine musician in his own right, upgraded to what we all considered at the time to be a high fidelity system. A monaural rig consisting of Dynakit slash Dynaco tube preamplifier and amplifier, a Garrard turntable, and a single acoustic research AR2 speaker. It was a rather crude system by modern standards, but considering what we were coming from, yes, that record player, it was a revelation. And the pleasure it gave my father could not have been greater had it consisted of Wilson Audio Wham Master Chronosonic speakers at $850,000 a pair, ultrasound Otello amplification at $650,000, and a Goldman reference to turntable, a relative bargain, at $250,000. However, let it be noted that the pleasure I myself would receive from the equipment just mentioned would indeed exceed what I felt listening to my father's system. So, should any of you have any of that rather pricey gear hanging around unused and unwanted, you will let me know. To the point, as often as not on Sunday afternoons, particularly during the winter, I would find my father on the living room couch listening primarily to opera singers on his new semi-hi-fi. Not to operas per se, but to albums of arias. Far and away, the singer whose albums he listened to the most, and I know this because I listened with him, was Joan Sutherland. The result for me was that Joan Sutherland's was the first operatic voice I got to know well, a voice that became, for the younger me, the benchmark of what an operatic soprano was supposed to sound like. Admittedly, as a kid, I had no reference point for what a coloratura soprano, FYI, an operatic soprano who specializes in music distinguished by its virtuosity. I had no idea what a coloratura soprano was supposed to sound like. I was completely ignorant of other extraordinary contemporary coloraturas, an amazing bunch of singers that included Maria Callas, Renata Tabaldi, Beverly Sills, Lucia Pop, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, Margaret Price, Montserrat Caballé, and Leontine Price. So, when it came to the female voice, the 11-year-old me didn't know you-know-what from Shinola. But I still understood. I understood at a gut level that Joan Sutherland was, well, stupendous. What I heard? 
was a voice that even I could recognize as being the size of an Olympic swimming pool. Yeah, based on her pictures on album covers, with her huge squared jaw and blocky, big-boned body, I imagined Sutherland to be a physical giant. In fact, she was five foot nine inches in height, an inch shorter than Renata Tobaldi and an inch taller than Maria Callas. Sutherland was by no means short, but neither was she the Valkyrian colossus I imagined her to be. In terms of her vocal color, she had a Goldilocks sort of voice, not too bright, not too dark, but just right. The English music critic, musicologist, and literary scholar John Barry Steen put it this way, quote, If the tonal spectrum ranges from bright to dark, Sutherland's place would be near the center, which is no doubt another reason for her wide appeal." Unquote. As far as the issues of interpretation and diction that some critics later focused on, I was clueless. Besides, she was singing mostly in Italian, the only words of which I knew at the time were spaghetti and Sophia Loren. So issues of diction would have gone directly over my head in any case. I just loved the way her voice sounded. But if memory serves me correctly, and it does, what I loved best was sitting on the living room couch listening to music with my father. His eyes would close in pleasure as he listened. There was the omnipresent smell of his cigarette smoke. Warm and cozy inside, the cold and dark afternoon winter sky outside couldn't touch us, and my child's feeling of absolute safety was intensified a gazillionfold by the beauty of the music we were listening to. These were, and remain, formative, enduring, and wonderful memories. Memories that helped to explain, even a little bit, why I turned out the way I did buying my own hi-fi gear. As soon as I could start earning seasonal money, mowing lawns in the spring and summer, raking leaves in the fall, and shoveling snow in the winter, I started saving up for my own hi-fi equipment. My first purchase, made when I was 14, was a Panasonic 760S open reel stereo tape player slash recorder. It had built-in speakers so it could be used without external amplification or speakers. OMG, I loved everything about that machine. I loved the feel of the controls, the bounce of the VU meters, the smell of the tape, the movement of the reels. As I could afford them, I ordered pre-recorded open reel tapes from a mail order operation in Washington, D.C. called Saxitone Records. But what I loved best of all was playing music for my friends. We'd sit in my room on the bed and sprawled out on the floor talking about the moronic things teenaged boys talk about, but mostly, mostly just grooving to whatever music we were listening to, be it Beatles or Beethoven. Yes, I had geeky friends. Did you expect something different? Excuse me, pardon moi, if for a moment I get a bit off color here, but we're all friends, right? Listen, 
Everyone always told me that being able to play jazz piano the way I do is the ultimate chick magnet. Wrong. In fact, my piano playing has yet to earn me a single fluid-on-fluid -fluid liaison, although my ceaseless optimism allows me to believe, or at least to hope, that that might change tomorrow, heck, perhaps even tonight, yes? But a good sound system and an appropriate selection of recordings in high school, college, my two gap years, and then graduate school, my stereo gear and records never failed me. The piano? Forget about it. Hi-fi gear rules. Just in case you didn't know, now you do. Back to the teenaged me. Early on, I was exhibiting what should be considered a budding case of audiophilia, and I started adding equipment as I could afford to do so. A pair of 12-inch Jensen speakers, then a Heathkit receiver, which I built myself, a combination integrated amplifier, that's a preamplifier plus amplifier, and a radio tuner. Next came a turntable, an AR with a Stanton cartridge, and finally, my own pair of AR2AX speakers. With the exception of the Heathkit, which was soon replaced with a Kenwood KA8004 integrated amplifier, this was the rig I took to college with me. In the blog version of this post, there's a photo captioned as follows. Summer 1974, having just completed my sophomore year of college, sitting under the loft bed I built in my summer dorm room in Spelman Hall. My father is on the left, my stepmother on the right. The Kenwood KA8004 integrated amplifier is above my left shoulder. The keyboard behind me is my beloved Fender Rhodes 73-key electric piano, yet another piece of gear I should never have parted with. In fact, this is the equipment that I took to California with me in 1978, the Fender Rhodes piano included, and stayed with me until 1986, when I could afford to buy a real piano and began, once again, upgrading my stereo rig. I'll spare you the details of those upgrades and eventual downgrades, because when it's all said and done, the equipment is only a means to an end, and the end is the thrill of listening to music, both individually and communally, with friends and family. In our post-Walkman, post-iPod, earbud and headphone-dominated era, in which each listener is an island, and in which communal listening seems to have gone the way of compassionate conservatism, I will admit that I miss the spontaneous listening parties that were a constant in my life, from listening to Joan Sutherland with my father in 1965, to playing Dire Straits and Handel's music for the Royal Fireworks for my friends through my Shehinian Diapason Eagle speaker system and Krell amplification in the early 2000s. Instead, today we have our home theater systems with their immersive Dolby Atmos surround sound and such. But with the nostalgia that is the due allowance of an aging musician, Damned if I don't miss having great hi-fi equipment 
and to listening to music with friends. When we reconvene tomorrow for Dr. Bob Prescribes, it will be all Joan Sutherland, all the time. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on Subjects Musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.